0: This is chapter eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter eight. The Boss. To be vested with enormous authority is a fine thing, but to have the onlooking world consent to it is a finer. The tower episode solidified my power and made it impregnable. If any were perchance disposed to be jealous and critical before that, they experienced a change of heart now. There was not any one in the kingdom who would have considered it good judgment to meddle with my matters. I was fast getting adjusted to my situation and circumstances. For a time I used to wake up mornings and smile at my dream, and listen for the colt's factory whistle, but that sort of thing played itself out gradually, and at last I was fully able to realize that I was actually living in the sixth century, and in Arthur's court, not a lunatic asylum. After that I was just as much at home in that century as I could have been in any other, and as for preference, I wouldn't have traded it for the twentieth. Look at the opportunities here for a man of knowledge, brains, pluck, and enterprise to sail in and grow up in the country, the grandest field that ever was, and all my own. Not a competitor, not a man who wasn't a baby to me in acquirements and capacities, whereas what would I amount to in the twentieth century? I should be a foreman of a factory, that is about all, and could drag a seine down street any day and catch a hundred better men than myself what a jump i had made i couldn't keep from thinking about it and contemplating it just as one does who has struck oil there was nothing back of me that could approach it unless it might be joseph's case and joseph's only approached it, and it didn't equal it quite FOR IT STANDS TO REASON THAT AS JOSEPH'S SPLENDID FINANCIAL INGENUITIES ADVANTAGED NOBODY BUT THE KING, THE GENERAL PUBLIC MUST HAVE REGARDED HIM WITH A GOOD DEAL OF DISFAVOUR, WHEREAS I HAD DONE MY ENTIRE PUBLIC A KINDNESS IN SPARING THE SON, AND WAS POPULAR BY REASON OF IT. I WAS NO SHADOW OF A KING. I WAS THE SUBSTANCE. THE KING HIMSELF WAS THE SHADOW. MY POWER WAS COLOSSAL and it was not a mere name, as such things have generally been, it was the genuine article. I stood here at the very spring and source of the second great period of the world's history, and could see the trickling stream of that history gather and deepen and broaden and roll its mighty tides down the far centuries, and I could note the upspringing of adventures like myself in the shelter of its long array of thrones.' de montfort's gavinston's mortimer's villierses the war-making campaign directing wantons of france and charles the Second's sceptre wielding drabs but nowhere in the procession was my full-sized fellow visible i was a unique and glad to know that that fact could not be dislodged or challenged for thirteen centuries and a half for sure yes in power I was equal to the king. At the same time there was another power that was a trifle stronger than both of us put together. That was the church. I do not wish to disguise that fact. I couldn't if I wanted to. But never mind about that now. It will show up in its proper place later on. It didn't cause me any trouble in the beginning, at least any of consequence. Well, it was a curious country and full of interest. And the people— They were the quaintest and simplest and trustingest race. Why, they were nothing but rabbits. It was pitiful for a person born in a wholesome free atmosphere to listen to their humble and hearty outpourings of loyalty toward their king and church and nobility, as if they had any more occasion to love and honor king and church and noble than a slave has to love and honor the lash, or a dog has to love and honor the stranger that kicks him why dear me any kind of royalty howsoever modified any kind of aristocracy howsoever pruned is rightly an insult but if you are born and brought up under that sort of arrangement you probably never find it out for yourself and don't believe it when somebody else tells you it is enough to make a body ashamed of his race to think of the sort of froth that has always occupied its thrones without shadow of right or reason and the seventh-rate people that have always figured as its aristocracies, a company of monarchs and nobles who, as a rule, would have achieved only poverty and obscurity if left, like their betters, to their own exertions. The most of King Arthur's British nation were slaves, pure and simple, and bore that name, and wore the iron collar on their necks, and the rest were slaves, in fact, but without the same they imagined themselves men and freemen and called themselves so the truth was the nation as a body was in the world for one object and one only to grovel before king and church and noble to slave for them sweat blood for them starve that they might be fed work that they might play drink misery to the dregs that they might be happy go naked that they might wear silks and jewels, pay taxes that they might be spared from paying them, and be familiar all their lives with the degrading language and postures of adulation that they might walk in pride and think themselves the gods of this world. And for all this the thanks they got were cuffs and contempt, and so poor-spirited were they that they took even this sort of attention as an honor.' inherited ideas are a curious thing and interesting to observe and examine i had mine the king and his people had theirs in both cases they flowed in ruts worn deep by time and habit and a man who should have proposed to divert them by reason and argument would have had a long contract on his hands For instance, those people had inherited the idea that all men without title and a long pedigree, whether they had great natural gifts and acquirements or hadn't, were creatures of no more consideration than so many animals, bugs, insects, whereas I had inherited the idea that human daws, who can consent to masquerade in the peacock shams of inherited dignities and unearned titles, are of no good but to be laughed at. The way I was looked upon was odd, but it was natural. You know how the keeper and the public regard the elephant in the menagerie. Well that is the idea. They are full of admiration of his vast bulk and his prodigious strength, they speak with pride of the fact that he can do a hundred marvels which are far and away beyond their own powers, and they speak with the same pride of the fact that in his wrath he is able to drive a thousand men before him but does that make him one of them? No. The raggedest tramp in the pit would smile at the idea. He couldn't comprehend it, couldn't take it in, couldn't in any remote way conceive of it. Well, to the king, the nobles, and all the nation, down to the very slaves and tramps, I was just that kind of an elephant, and nothing more. I was admired, also feared. But it was as an animal is admired and feared The animal is not reverenced, neither was I. I was not even respected. I had no pedigree, no inherited title. So in the king's and nobles' eyes I was mere dirt. The people regarded me with wonder and awe, but there was no reverence mixed with it. Through the force of inherited ideas they were not able to conceive of anything being entitled to that except pedigree and lordship there you see the hand of that awful power the roman catholic church in two or three little centuries it had converted a nation of men to a nation of worms before the day of the church's supremacy in the world men were men and held their heads up and had a man's pride and spirit and independence and what of greatness and position a person got he got mainly by achievement not by birth but then the church came to the front with an axe to grind and she was wise and subtle and knew more than one way to skin a cat or a nation she invented divine right of kings and propped it all round brick by brick with the beatitudes wrenching them from their good purpose to make them fortify an evil one she preached to the commoner humility obedience to superiors the beauty of self-sacrifice she preached to the commoner meekness under insult preached still to the commoner always to the commoner patience meanness of spirit non-resistance under oppression and she introduced heritable ranks and aristocracies and taught all the christian populations of the earth to bow down to them and worship them even down to my birth century that poison was still in the blood of christendom and the best of English commoners was still content to see his inferiors impudently continuing to hold a number of positions, such as lordships and the throne, to which the grotesque laws of his country did not allow him to aspire. In fact, he was not merely contented with this strange condition of things, he was even able to persuade himself that he was proud of it. It seems to show that there isn't anything you can't stand, if you are only born and bred to it. Of course, that taint, that reverence for rank and title, had been in our American blood, too. I know that. But when I left America, it had disappeared, at least to all intents and purposes. The remnant of it was restricted to the dudes and dudesses. When a disease has worked its way down to that level, it may fairly be said to be out of the system." but to return to my anomalous position in king arthur's kingdom here i was a giant among pigmies a man among children a master intelligence among intellectual moles by all rational measurement the one and only actual great man in that whole british world and yet there and then just as in the remote england of my birth-time the sheep-witted earl who could claim long descent from a king's layman, acquired at second hand from the slums of London, was a better man than I was. Such a personage was fawned upon in Arthur's realm, and reverently looked up to by everybody, even though his dispositions were as mean as his intelligence, and his morals as base as his lineage. There were times when he could sit down in the king's presence, but I couldn't. I could have got a title easily enough, and that would have raised me a large step in everybody's eyes, even in the King's, the giver of it. But I didn't ask for it, and I declined it when it was offered. I couldn't have enjoyed such a thing with my notions, and it wouldn't have been fair, anyway, because as far back as I could go our tribe had always been short of the bar-sinister. I couldn't have felt really and satisfactorily fine and proud and set up over any title except one that should come from the nation itself, the only legitimate source, and such an one I hoped to win, and in the course of years of honest and honorable endeavor I did win it and did wear it with a high and clean pride. This title fell casually from the lips of a blacksmith one day in a village was caught up as a happy thought and tossed from mouth to mouth with a laugh and an affirmative vote in ten days it had swept the kingdom and was become as familiar as the king's name i was never known by any other designation afterward whether in the nation's talk or in grave debate upon matters of state at the council board of the sovereign this title translated into modern speech would be the boss Elected by the nation. That suited me. And it was a pretty high title. There were very few thes, and I was one of them. If you spoke of the duke, or the earl, or the bishop, how could anybody tell which one you meant? But if you spoke of the king, or the queen, or the boss, it was different. Well, I liked the king, and as king I respected him, respected the office at least respected it as much as I was capable of respecting any unearned supremacy. But as men I looked down upon him and his nobles privately, and he and they liked me, and respected my office. But as an animal, without birth or sham title, they looked down upon me, and were not particularly private about it either. I didn't charge for my opinion about them, and they didn't charge for their opinion about me. The count was square. The books balanced. Everybody was satisfied. End of chapter eight. Chapter nine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter nine. The Tournament. They were always having grand tournaments there at Camelot, and very stirring and picturesque and ridiculous human bull-fights they were, too, but just a little wearisome to the practical mind. However, I was generally on hand, for two reasons. A man must not hold himself aloof from the things which his friends and his community have at heart if he would be liked, especially as a statesman, and both as businessmen and statesman. I wanted to study the tournament, and see if I couldn't invent an improvement on it. That reminds me to remark, in passing, that the very first official thing I did in my administration—and it was on the very first day of it, too—was to start a patent office, for I knew that a country without a patent office and good patent laws was just a crab, and couldn't travel anyway but sideways or backways. Things ran along, a tournament nearly every week, and now and then the boys used to want me to take a hand—I mean Sir Lancelot and the rest—but I said I would by and by, no hurry yet, and too much government machinery to oil up and set to rights and start a-going. We had one tournament which was continued from day to day during more than a week, and as many as five hundred knights took part in it from first to last. They were weeks gathering they came on horseback from everywhere from the very ends of the country and even from beyond the sea and many brought ladies and all brought squires and troops of servants it was a most gaudy and gorgeous crowd as to costumery and very characteristic of the country and the time in the way of high animal spirits innocent indecencies of language and happy-hearted indifference to morals it was fight or look on all day and every day and sing gamble dance carouse half the night every night they had a most noble good time you never saw such people those banks of beautiful ladies shining in their barbaric splendors would see a knight sprawl from his horse in the lists with a lance-shaft the thickness of your ankle clean through him and the blood spouting and instead of fainting they would clap their hands and crowd each other for a better view only sometimes one would dive into her handkerchief and look ostentatiously broken-hearted, and then you could lay two to one that there was a scandal there somewhere, and she was afraid the public hadn't found it out. The noise at night would have been annoying to me ordinarily, but I didn't mind it in the present circumstances, because it kept me from hearing the quacks detaching legs and arms from the day's cripples. They ruined an uncommon good old cross-cut saw for me, and broke the sawbuck too, but I let it pass. And as for my axe, well, I made up my mind that the next time I lent an axe to a surgeon I would pick my century. I not only watched this tournament from day to day, but detailed an intelligent priest from my department of public morals and agriculture, and ordered him to report it for it was my purpose, by and by, when I should have gotten the people along far enough, to start a newspaper. The first thing you want in a new country is a patent office, then work up your school system, and after that out with your paper. A newspaper has its faults, and plenty of them, but no matter. It's hark from the tomb for a dead nation, and don't you forget it. You can't resurrect a dead nation without it. There isn't any way. So I wanted to sample things, and be finding out what sort of reporter material I might be able to rake together out of the sixth century when I should come to need it. Well, the priest did very well, considering. He got in all the details, and that is a good thing in a local item. You see, he had kept books for the undertaker department of his church when he was younger, and there, you know, the money's in the details—the more details, the more swag bearers mutes candles prayers everything counts and if the bereaved don't buy prayers enough you mark up your candles with a forked pencil and your bill shows up all right and he had a good knack at getting in the complimentary thing here and there about a night that was likely to advertise no i mean a night that had influence and he also had a neat gift of exaggeration, for in his time he had kept door for a pious hermit who lived in a sty and worked miracles. Of course, this novice's report lacked a whoop and crash and lurid description, and therefore wanted the true ring, but its antique wording was quaint and sweet and simple, and full of the fragrances and flavors of the time, and these little merits made up in a measure for its more important lacks. Here is an extract from it. Then Sir Brian de Les Isles and grumor Grumerson, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Aglovale and Sir Tor, and Sir Tor smote down Sir Grumor Grumerson to the earth. Then came Sir Carados of the Dolorous Tower, and Sir Turquine, knights of the castle, and there encountered with them Sir Percival de Gallus, and Sir Lamorack de Gallus that were two brethren, and there encountered Sir Percival with Sir Carados, and either brake their spears unto their hands, and then Sir Turquine with Sir Lamorack, and either of them smote down other horse and all to the earth, and either parties rescued other and horsed them again, and Sir Arnold and Sir Gautair, knights of the castle, encountered with Sir Blandolus and Sir Kay, and these four knights encountered mightily, and break their spears to their hands. Then came Sir Pertolope from the castle, and there encountered with him Sir Lionel, and there Sir Pertolope, the green knight smote down Sir Lionel, brother to Sir Lancelot. All this was marked by noble heralds, who bear him best, and their names. Then Sir Bleoborus break his spear upon Sir Gareth, but of that stroke Sir Bleoborus fell to the earth, when Sir Gallahodin saw that, he bade Sir Gareth keep him, and Sir Gareth smote him to the earth. Then Sir Galahad gat a spear to avenge his brother, and in the same wise Sir Gareth served him, and Sir Dinadan and his brother La Cote Male Tale, and Sir Sagramor Le Desiris, and Sir Dodinus Le Savage, and all these he bare down with one spear. When King Aswesantz of Ireland saw Sir Gareth fare so, he marvelled what he might be, that one time seemed green, and another time, at his again coming, he seemed blue. And thus at every course that he rode to and from he changed his color, so that there might neither king nor knight have ready cognizance of him. Then Sir Aguisance, the King of Ireland, encountered with Sir Gareth, and there Sir Gareth smote him from his horse, saddle and all. And then King Carados of Scotland and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man. And in the same wise he served King Uriens of the land of Gore. And then there came in Sir Bagdemagus and Sir Gareth smote him down horse and man to the earth. And Bagdemagus's son Maligmanus brake a spear upon Sir Gareth mightily and knightly. And then Sir Galahalt the noble prince cried on high, knight with the many colours, well hast thou justed. Now make thee ready, that I may just with thee. Sir Gareth heard him, and he gat a great spear, and so they encountered together. And there the prince brake his spear. But Sir Gareth smote him upon the left side of the helm, that he reeled here and there, and he had fallen down had not his men recovered him. Truly, said King Arthur, that knight with the many colours is a good knight, Wherefore the king called unto him Sir Launcelot and prayed him to encounter with that knight. Sir, said Launcelot, I may as well find in my heart for to forbear him at this time, for he hath had travail enough this day, and when a good knight doth so well upon some day, it is no good knight's part to let him of his worship, and, namely, when he seeth a knight hath done so great labour, for peradventure, said Sir Launcelot, his quarrel is here this day, and peradventure he is best beloved with this lady of all that be here, for I see well he paineth himself, and enforceth him to do great deeds, and therefore, said Sir Launcelot, as for me, this day he shall have the honour. Though it lay in my power to put him from it, I would not." There was an unpleasant little episode that day, which, for reasons of state, I struck out of my priest's report. You will have noticed that Garry was doing some great fighting in the engagement. When I say Garry, I mean Sir Gareth. Garry was my private pet name for him. It suggests that I had a deep affection for him, and that was the case. But it was a private pet name only, and never spoken aloud to any one, much less to him being a noble, he would not have endured a familiarity like that from me. Well, to proceed. I sat in the private box set apart for me as the king's minister. While Sir Dinadan was waiting for his turn to enter the lists, he came in there and sat down and began to talk, for he was always making up to me, because I was a stranger, and he liked to have a fresh market for his jokes, the most of them having reached that stage of where— where the teller has to do the laughing himself while the other person looks sick i had always responded to his efforts as well as i could and felt a very deep and real kindness for him too for the reason that if by malice of fate he knew the one particular anecdote which i had heard oftenest and had most hated and most loathed all my life he had at least spared it me It was one which I had heard attributed to every humorous person who had ever stood on American soil, from Columbus down to Artemis Ward. It was about a humorous lecturer, who flooded an ignorant audience with the killingest jokes for an hour, and never got a laugh. And then, when he was leaving, some gray simpletons wrung him gratefully by the hand, and said it had been the funniest thing they had ever heard, and it was all they could do to keep from laughing right out in meeting that anecdote never saw the day that it was worth the telling. And yet I had sat under the telling of it hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of times, and cried and cursed all the way through. Then who can hope to know what my feelings were to hear this armor-plated ass start in on it again in the murky twilight of tradition, before the dawn of history, while even Lactantius might be referred to as the late Lactantius and the crusades wouldn't be born for five hundred years yet. Just as he finished, the call-boy came, so, haw-hawing like a demon, he went rattling and clanking out like a crate of loose castings, and I knew nothing more. It was some minutes before I came to, and then I opened my eyes just in time to see Sir Gareth fetch him an awful welt, and I unconsciously out with the prayer, I hope to gracious he's killed. But by ill-luck, before I had got half through with the words, Sir Gareth crashed into Sir Sagramor, the desirous, and sent him thundering over his horse's crupper, and Sir Sagramore caught my remark and thought I meant it for him. Well, whenever one of those people got a thing in his head, there was no getting it out again. I knew that, so I saved my breath and offered no explanations. As soon as Sir Sagramor got well— he notified me that there was a little account to settle between us, and he named a day three or four years in the future—place of settlement, the lists where the offense had been given. I said I would be ready when he got back. You see, he was going for the Holy Grail. The boys all took a flyer at the Holy Grail now and then. It was a several years' cruise. They always put in the long absence snooping around in the most conscientious way though none of them had any idea where the Holy Grail really was, and I don't think any of them actually expected to find it, or would have known what to do with it, if he had run across it. You see, it was just the Northwest Passage of that day, as you may say—that was all. Every year expeditions went out holy grailing, and next year relief expeditions went out to hunt for them. There was worlds of reputation in it, but no money. Why they actually wanted me to put in? Well, I should smile. End of chapter nine. This is chapter ten. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter ten beginnings of civilization. The round-table soon heard of the challenge, and of course it was a good deal discussed, for such things interested the boys. The king thought I ought now to set forth in quest of adventures, so that I might gain renown, and be the more worthy to meet Sir Sigromore when the several years should have rolled away. I excused myself for the present, I said it would take me three or four years yet to get things well fixed up and going smoothly. Then I should be ready. All the chances were that at the end of that time Sir Sagramore would still be out grailing, so no valuable time would be lost by the postponement. I should then have been in office six or seven years, and I believed my system and machinery would be so well developed that I could take a holiday without its working any harm. I was pretty well satisfied with what I had already accomplished. In various quiet nooks and corners I had the beginnings of all sorts of industries under way—nuclei of future vast factories, the iron and steel missionaries of my future civilization. In these were gathered together the brightest young minds I could find, and I kept agents out raking the country for more all the time. I was training a crowd of ignorant folk into experts experts in every sort of handiwork and scientific calling. These nurseries of mine went smoothly and privately along undisturbed in their obscure country retreats, for nobody was allowed to come into their precincts without a special permit, for I was afraid of the church. I had started a teacher factory and a lot of Sunday schools the first thing. As a result, I now had an admirable system of graded schools in full blast in those places and also a complete variety of Protestant congregations all in a prosperous and growing condition. Everybody could be any kind of a Christian he wanted to. There was perfect freedom in that matter. But I confined public religious teaching to the churches and the Sunday schools, permitting nothing of it in my other educational buildings. I could have given my own sect the preference and made everybody a Presbyterian without any trouble, but that would have been to affront a law of human nature. Spiritual wants and instincts are as various in the human family as our physical appetites, complexions, and features, and a man is only at his best, morally, when he is equipped with a religious garment whose color and shape and size most nicely accommodate themselves to the spiritual complexion, angularities, and stature of the individual who wears it. And, besides, I was afraid of a united church. It makes a mighty power—the mighty is conceivable. And then, when it by and by gets into selfish hands, as it is always bound to do, it means death to human liberty and paralysis to human thought. All mines were royal property, and there were a good many of them. They had formerly been worked as savages always worked mines—holes grubbed in the earth, and the mineral brought up in sacks of hide by hand at the rate of a ton a day but i had begun to put the mining on a scientific basis as early as i could yes i had made pretty handsome progress when sir sagramore's challenge struck me four years rolled by and then well you would never imagine it in the world unlimited power is the ideal thing when it is in safe hands The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government an earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government if the conditions were the same namely the despot the perfectest individual of the human race and his lease of life perpetual but as a perishable perfect man must die and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor an earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government It is the worst form that is possible. My works showed what a despot could do with the resources of a kingdom at his command. Unsuspected by this dark land, I had the civilization of the nineteenth-century booming under its very nose. It was fenced away from the public view, but there it was, a gigantic and unassailable fact, and to be heard from yet, if I lived and had luck. There it was, as sure a fact, and as substantial a fact, as any serene volcano standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky, and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. My schools and churches were children four years before. They were grown up now. My shops of that day were vast factories now. Where I had a dozen trained men then, I had a thousand now. Where I had one brilliant expert then— i had fifty now i stood with my hand on the cock so to speak ready to turn it on and flood the midnight world with light at any moment but i was not going to do the thing in that sudden way it was not my policy the people could not have stood it and moreover i should have had the established roman catholic church on my back in a minute no i had been going cautiously all the while I had had confidential agents trickling through the country some time, whose office was to undermine knighthood by imperceptible degrees, and to gnaw a little at this and that, and the other superstition, and so prepare the way gradually for a better order of things. I was turning on my light one candle-power at a time, and meant to continue to do so. I had scattered some branch schools secretly about the kingdom, and they were doing very well. I meant to work this racket more and more as time wore on, if nothing occurred to frighten me. One of my deepest secrets was my West Point, my military academy. I kept that most jealously out of sight, and I did the same with my naval academy, which I had established at a remote seaport. Both were prospering to my satisfaction. Clarence was twenty-two now, and was my head executive, my right hand. He was a darling he was equal to anything. There wasn't anything he couldn't turn his hand to. Of late I had been training him for journalism, for the time seemed about right for a start in the newspaper line. Nothing big, but just a small weekly for experimental circulation in my civilization nurseries. He took to it like a duck. There was an editor concealed in him, sure. Already he had doubled himself in one way. He talked sixth century and wrote nineteenth, His journalistic style was climbing steadily. It was already up to the back-settlement Alabama mark, and couldn't be told from the editorial output of that region either by matter or flavor. We had another large departure on hand, too. This was a telegraph and a telephone—our first venture in this line. These wires were for private service only, as yet, and must be kept private until a riper day should come. We had a gang of men on the road, working mainly by night. They were stringing ground-wires we were afraid to put up poles, for they would attract too much inquiry. Ground-wires were good enough in both instances, for my wires were protected by an insulation of my own invention which was perfect. My men had orders to strike across country, avoiding roads, and establishing connection with any considerable towns whose lights betrayed their presence, and leaving experts in charge. Nobody could tell you how to find any place in the kingdom, for nobody ever went intentionally to any place, but only struck it by accident in his wanderings, and then generally left it without thinking to inquire what its name was. At one time and another we had sent out topographical expeditions to survey and map the kingdom, but the priests had always interfered and raised trouble. So we had given the thing up for the present. It would be poor wisdom to antagonize the church." As for the general condition of the country, it was as it had been when I arrived in it, to all intents and purposes. I had made changes, but they were necessarily slight, and they were not noticeable. Thus far I had not even meddled with taxation, outside of the taxes which provided the royal revenues. I had systematized those, and put the service on an effective and righteous basis. As a result, these revenues were already quadrupled." and yet the burden was so much more equably distributed than before that all the kingdom felt a sense of relief and the praises of my administration were hearty and general personally i struck an interruption now but i did not mind it it could not have happened at a better time earlier it could have annoyed me but now everything was in good hands and swimming right along the king had reminded me several times of late that the postponement i had asked for four years before had about run out now. It was a hint that I ought to be starting out to seek adventures and get up a reputation of a size to make me worthy of the honor of breaking a lance with Sir Sagramore, who was still out grailing, but was being hunted for by various relief expeditions, and might be found any year now. So, you see, I was expecting this interruption. It did not take me by surprise. End of Chapter 10 chapter 11 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court chapter 11 the yankee in search of adventures there never was such a country for wandering liars and they were of both sexes hardly a month went by without one of these tramps arriving and generally loaded with a tale about some princess or other wanting help to get her out of some faraway castle where she was held in captivity by a lawless scoundrel, usually a giant. Now, you would think that the first thing the king would do, after listening to such a novelette from an entire stranger, would be to ask for credentials, yes, and a a pointer or two as to locality of castle, best route to it, and so on but nobody ever thought of so simple and common sense a thing as that. No, everybody swallowed these people's lies whole, and never asked a question of any sort or about anything. Well, one day, when I was not around, one of these people came along—it was a she-one this time—and told a tale of the usual pattern. Her mistress was a captive in a vast and gloomy castle, along with forty-four other young and beautiful girls, pretty much all of them princesses. They had been languishing in that cruel captivity for twenty-six years. The masters of the castle were three stupendous brothers, each with four arms and one eye—the eye in the center of the forehead, and as big as a fruit. Sort of fruit not mentioned—their usual slovenliness in statistics. Would you believe it? The king and the whole round table were in raptures over this preposterous opportunity for adventure. Every knight of the table jumped for the chance and begged for it, but to their vexation and chagrin the king conferred it upon me, who had not asked for it at all. By an effort I contained my joy when Clarence brought me the news, but he, he could not contain his his mouth gushed delight and gratitude in a steady discharge—delight in my good fortune, gratitude to the king for this splendid mark of his favor for me. He could keep neither his legs nor his body still, but pirouetted about the place in an airy ecstasy of happiness. On my side, I could have cursed the kindness that conferred upon me this benefaction, but I kept my vexation under the surface for policy's sake, and did what I could to let on to be glad. Indeed, I said I was glad, and in a way it was true. I was as glad as a person is when he is scalped. Well, one must make the best of things, and not waste time with useless fretting, but get down to business and see what can be done. In all lies there is wheat among the chaff. I must get at the wheat in this case. So I sent for the girl, and she came." She was a comely enough creature and soft and modest, but if signs went for anything, she didn't know as much as a lady's walk. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba 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 ba. I said, "My dear, have you been questioned as to particulars?" She said she hadn't. "Well, I didn't expect you had, but I thought I would ask to make sure. It's the way I've been raised." Now, you mustn't take it unkindly if I remind you that, as we don't know you, we must go a little slow. You may be all right, of course, and we'll hope that you are, but to take it for granted isn't business. You understand that. I'm obliged to ask you a few questions. Just answer up fair and square, and don't be afraid. Where do you live when you are at home? In the land of motor, fair sir. Land of motor. I don't remember hearing of it before parents living as to that i know not if they be yet on live sith it is many years that i have lain shut up in the castle your name please i hight the demoiselle alisande de Cartloise, and it please you do you know anybody here who can identify you that were not likely fair lord i being come hither now for the first time have you brought any letters any documents any proofs that you are trustworthy and truthful Of a surety, no, and wherefore should I? Have I not a tongue, and cannot I say all that myself? But you're saying it, you know, and somebody else's saying it is different. Different? How might that be? I fear me, I do not understand. Don't understand? Land of—why, you you see—you see—my, great Scott, can't you understand a little thing like that? Can't you understand the difference between your—why do you look so innocent and idiotic? i in truth i know not but it were the will of god yes yes i reckon that's about the size of it don't mind my seeming excited i'm not let us change the subject now as to this castle with forty-five princesses in it and three ogres at the head of it uh, tell me uh, where is this harem harem the castle you understand where is the castle oh as to that it is great and strong and well beseen and lieth in a far country yes it is many leagues how many ah fair sir it were woundily hard to tell they are so many and do so lap the one upon the other and being made all in the same image and tinct with the same color one may not know the one league from its fellow nor how to count them except they be taken apart and Ye wit well it were God's work to do that, being not within man's capacity. For ye will note— Hold on, hold on, Uh, never mind about the distance. Whereabouts does the castle lie? What's the direction from here? Ah, please you, sir, it hath no direction from here, but reason that the road lieth not straight, but turneth evermore. Wherefore the direction of its place abideth not, but is some time under the one sky, and anon under another. Whereso, if ye be minded that it is in the east, and when thitherward, ye shall observe that the way of the road doth yet again turn upon itself by the space of half a circle, and this marvel happening again, and yet again, and still again, it will grieve you that you had thought by vanities of the mind to thwart, and bring to naught the will of him that giveth not a castle a direction from a place except it pleaseth him.' And if it please him not, will the rather that he even all castles and all directions thereunto vanish out of the earth, leaving the places wherein they tarried desolate and vacant, so warning his creatures that where he will, he will, and where he will not, he— Oh, that's all right, that's all right. Give us a rest. Never mind about the direction. Hang the direction. I, I beg pardon. I, I beg a thousand pardons. I am not well to-day. Pay no attention when I soliloquize. It is an old habit, an old bad habit, and hard to get rid of when one's digestion is all disordered with eating food that was raised forever and ever before he was born. Good land! A man can't keep his functions regular on spring chickens thirteen hundred years old. But come, never mind about that. um, Let's—have you got such a thing as a map of that region about you? Now, a good map—is it— peradventure that manner of thing which of late the unbelievers have brought from over the great seas which being boiled in oil and an onion and salt added thereto doth what a map uh, what are you talking about don't you know what a map is uh, there there never mind D- don't explain i hate explanations they fog a thing up so that you can't tell anything about it run along dear good day uh, show her the way clarence oh well It was reasonably plain, now, why these donkeys didn't prospect these liars for details. It may be that this girl had a fact in her somewhere, but I don't believe you could have sluiced it out with a hydraulic, nor got it with the earlier forms of blasting, even. It was a case for dynamite. Why, she was a perfect ass, and yet the king and his knights had listened to her as if she had been a leaf out of the gospel. It kind of sizes up the whole party.' and think of the simple ways of this court this wandering wench hadn't any more trouble to get access to the king in his palace than she would have had to get into the poorhouse in my day and country in fact he was glad to see her glad to hear her tale with that adventure of hers to offer she was as welcome as a corpse is to a coroner just as i was ending up these reflections clarence came back i remarked upon the barren result of my efforts with the girl hadn't got hold of a single point that could help me to find the castle. The youth looked a little surprised, or puzzled or something, and intimated that he had been wondering to himself what I had wanted to ask the girl all those questions for. "'Why, great guns!' I said. "'Don't I want to find the castle? And how else would I go about it?' "'La, sweet your worship, one may lightly answer that, I ween. She will go with thee—they always do—she will ride with thee.' ride with me nonsense but of a truth she will she will ride with thee thou shalt see what she browse around the hills and scour the woods with me alone and i as good as engaged to be married why it's scandalous think how it would look my the dear face that rose before me the boy was eager to know all about this tender matter i swore him to secrecy and then whispered her name puss flanagan he looked disappointed and said he didn't remember the countess. How natural it was for the little courtier to give her a rank! He asked me where she lived. In East Hart. Uh, i came to myself and stopped a little confused, and then I said, Never mind now, I'll, I'll tell you some time. And might he see her? Would I let him see her some day? It was but a little thing to promise, thirteen hundred years or so, and he's so eager, so I said yes. But I sighed, I couldn't help it and yet there was no sense in sighing, for she wasn't born yet. But that is the way we are made. We don't reason where we feel, we just feel. My expedition was all the talk that day and that night, and the boys were very good to me, and made much of me, and seemed to have forgotten their vexation and disappointment, and come to be as anxious for me to hive those ogres and set those ripe old virgins loose, as if it were themselves that had the contract. Well, they were good children, but just children, that is all, and they gave me no end of points about how to scout for giants and how to scoop them in, and they told me all sorts of charms against enchantments, and gave me salves and other rubbish to put on my wounds. But it never occurred to one of them to reflect that if I was such a wonderful necromancer as I was pretending to be, I ought not to need salves or instructions or charms against enchantments and least of all arms and armor, on a foray of any kind, even against fire-spouting dragons and devils hot from perdition, let alone such poor adversaries as these I was after, these commonplace ogres of the back settlements. I was to have an early breakfast, and start at dawn, for that was the usual way, but I had the demon's own time with my armor, and this delayed me a little. It is troublesome to get into.' and there is so much detail. First you wrap a layer or two of blanket around your body, for a sort of cushion and to keep off the cold iron. Then you put on your sleeves and shirt of chain mail. These are made of small steel links woven together, and they form a fabric so flexible that if you toss your shirt onto the floor it slumps into a pile like a peck of wet fishnet. It is very heavy, and is nearly the uncomfortablest material in the world for a knight's shirt, yet plenty used it for that—tax collectors and reformers, and one-horse kings, with a defective title, and those sorts of people. Then you put on your shoes—flatboats, roofed over with interleaving bands of steel, and screw your clumsy spurs into the heels. Next you buckle your greaves on your legs, and your creases on your thighs then come your back-plate and your breastplate, and you begin to feel crowded then you hitch on to the breastplate the half-petticoat of broad overlapping bands of steel which hangs down in front but is scalloped out behind so you can sit down and isn't any real improvement on an inverted coal-scuttle either for looks or for wear or to wipe your hands on next you belt on your sword then you put your stovepipe joints on your arms your iron gauntlets on your hands your iron rat-trap onto your head with a rag of steel web hitched onto it to hang over the back of your neck and there you are snug as a candle in a candle mold this is no time to dance well a man that is packed away like that is a nut that isn't worth the cracking there is so little of the meat even when you get down to it by comparison with the shell the boys helped me or i never could have got in just as we finished sir bedivere happened in and I saw that as like as not I hadn't chosen the most convenient outfit for a long trip. How stately he looked, and tall and broad and grand. He had on his head a conical steel cask that only came down to his ears, and for visor had only a narrow steel bar that extended down to his upper lip and protected his nose. And all the rest of him, from neck to heel, was flexible chain-mail, trousers and all but pretty much all of him was hidden under his outside garment which of course was of chain-mail as i said and hung straight from his shoulders to his ankles and from his middle to the bottom both before and behind was divided so that he could ride and let the skirts hang down on each side he was going grayling and it was just the outfit for it too i would have given a good deal for that ulster but it was too late now to be fooling around the sun was just up, the king and the court were all on hand to see me off and wish me luck, so it wouldn't be etiquette for me to tarry. You don't get on your horse yourself—no, if you try it, you would get disappointed. They carry you out, just as they carry a sun-struck man to the drug-store, and put you on, and help get you to rights, and fix your feet in the stirrups, and all the while you do feel so strange and stuffy and like somebody else like somebody that has been married on a sudden, or struck by lightning, or something like that, and hasn't quite fetched around yet, and is sort of numb, and can't just get his bearings. Then they stood up the mast they called a spear, in its socket by my left foot, and I gripped it with my hand. Lastly they hung my shield around my neck, and I was all complete and ready to up-anchor and get to sea. Everybody was as good to me as they could be, and a maid of honor gave me the stirrup-cup her own self there was nothing more to do now but for that damsel to get up behind me on a pillion which she did and put an arm or so around me to hold on and so we started and everybody gave us a good-bye and waved their handkerchiefs or helmets and everybody we met going down the hill and through the village was respectful to us except some shabby little boys on the outskirts they said oh what a guy and hove clods at us in my experience boys are the same in all ages they don't respect anything they don't care for anything or anybody they say go up bald head to the prophet going his unoffending way in the gray of antiquity they sass me in the holy gloom of the middle ages and i had seen them act the same way in buchanan's administration i remember because i was there and helped the prophet had his bears and settled with his boys and I wanted to get down and settle with mine, but it wouldn't answer, because I couldn't have got up again. I hate a country without a derrick. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 12 Chapter 12 slow torture straight off we were in the country it was most lovely and pleasant in those sylvan solitudes in the early cool morning in the first freshness of autumn from hilltops we saw fair green valleys lying spread out below with streams winding through them and island groves of trees here and there and huge lonely oaks scattered about and casting black blots of shade and beyond the valleys we saw the ranges of hills blue with haze stretching away in billowy perspective to the horizon with at wide intervals a dim fleck of white or gray on a wave summit which we knew was a castle we crossed broad natural lawns sparkling with dew and we moved like spirits the cushioned turf giving out no sound of footfall We dreamed along through glades in a mist of green light that got its tint from the sun-drenched roof of leaves overhead, and by our feet the clearest and coldest of runlets went frisking and gossiping over its reefs, and making a sort of whispering music, comfortable to hear. And at times we left the world behind, and entered into the solemn great deeps and rich gloom of the forest, where furtive wild things whisked and scurried by— and were gone before you could even get your eye on the place where the noise was, and where only the earliest birds were turning out and getting to business with a song here and a quarrel yonder, and a mysterious far-off hammering and drumming for worms on a tree trunk, away somewhere in the impenetrable remoteness of the woods. And by and by out we would swing again into the glare." About the third or fourth or fifth time that we swung out into the glare, it was along there somewhere a couple of hours or so after sun-up, it wasn't as pleasant as it had been. It was beginning to get hot. This was quite noticeable. We had a very long pull after that, without any shade. Now it is curious how progressively little frets grow and multiply after they once get a start things which I didn't mind at all at first, I began to mind now, and more and more, too, all the time. The first ten or fifteen times I wanted my handkerchief I didn't seem to care. I got along, and said never mind, it it isn't any matter, and dropped it out of my mind. But now it was different. I wanted it all the time. It was nag-nag-nag, right along, and no rest— I couldn't get it out of my mind, and so at last I lost my temper and said, hang a man that would make a suit of armor without any pockets in it. You see, I had my handkerchief in my helmet, and some other things, but it was that kind of a helmet that you can't take off by yourself. That hadn't occurred to me when I put it there, and in fact I didn't know it. I supposed it would be particularly convenient there, and so now the thought of its being there, so handy and close by, and yet not get at made it all the worse and the harder to bear. Yes, the thing that you can't get is the thing that you want, mainly. Everyone has noticed that. Well, it took my mind off from everything else, took it clear off, and centered it in my helmet. And mile after mile there it stayed, imagining the handkerchief, picturing the handkerchief. And it was bitter and aggravating to have the salt sweat keep trickling down into my eyes, and I couldn't get at it, it seems like a little thing, on paper, but it was not a little thing at all. It was the most real kind of misery. I would not say it if it was not so. I made up my mind that I would carry along a reticule next time, let it look how it might, and people say what they would. Of course these iron dudes of the round table would think it was scandalous, and maybe raise shell about it. But as for me, give me comfort first and style afterwards. So we jogged along, and now and then we struck a stretch of dust, and it would tumble up in clouds, and get into my nose, and make me sneeze and cry, and of course I said things I oughtn't to have said—I don't deny that—I am not better than others. We couldn't seem to meet anybody in this lonesome Britain, not even an ogre, and in the mood I was in then—it was well for the ogre—that is, an ogre with a handkerchief. Most knights would have thought of nothing but getting his armor. But so I got his bandana, he could keep his hardware for all of me. Meantime, it was getting hotter and hotter in there. You see, the sun was beating down and warming up the iron more and more all the time. Well, when you are hot that way, every little thing irritates you. When I trotted, I rattled like a crate of dishes, and that annoyed me. And, moreover, I couldn't seem to stand that shield slatting and banging now about my breast, now around my back— and if I dropped into a walk, my joints creaked and screeched in that wearisome way that a wheelbarrow does, and as we didn't create any breeze at that gate, I was like to get fried in that stove. And besides, the quieter you went, the heavier the iron settled down on you, and the more and more tons you seemed to weigh every minute. And you had to be always changing hands, and passing your spear over to the other foot. It got so irksome for one hand to hold it long at a time. Well— you know when you perspire that way in rivers there comes a time when you when you well when you itch you are inside your hands are outside so there you are nothing but iron between it is not a light thing let it sound as it may first it is one place then another then some more and it goes on spreading and spreading and at last the territory is all occupied and nobody can imagine what you feel like nor how unpleasant it is and when it had got to the worst and it seemed to me that i could not stand anything more a fly got in through the bars and settled on my nose and the bars were stuck and wouldn't work and i couldn't get the visor up and i could only shake my head which was baking hot by this time and the fly well you know how a fly acts when he has got a certainty He only minded the shaking enough to change from nose to lip, and lip to ear, and buzz and buzz all around in there, and keep on lighting and biting, in a way that a person already so distressed as I was simply could not stand. So I gave in, and got Alessande to unship the helmet and relieve me of it. Then she emptied the conveniences out of it and fetched it full of water, and I drank, and then stood up and she poured the rest down inside the armor. One cannot think how refreshing it was. She continued to fetch and pour until I was well soaked and thoroughly comfortable. It was good to have a rest—and peace. But nothing is quite perfect in this life at any time. I had made a pipe a while back, and also some pretty fair tobacco—not the real thing, but what some of the Indians use—the inside bark of the willow—dried. These comforts had been in the helmet, and now I had them again, but no matches. Gradually, as the time wore along, one annoying fact was borne in upon my understanding—that we were weather-bound. An armed novice cannot mount his horse without help, and plenty of it. Sandy was not enough—not enough for me, anyway. We had to wait until somebody should come along. Waiting in silence would have been agreeable enough, for I was full of matter for reflection and wanted to give it a chance to work i wanted to try and think how it was that rational or even half-rational men could ever have learnt to wear armor considering its inconveniences and how they had managed to keep up such a fashion for generations when it was plain that what i had suffered to-day they had had to suffer all the days of their lives I wanted to think that out and moreover i wanted to think out some way to reform this evil and persuade the people to let the foolish fashion die out but thinking was out of the question in the circumstances you couldn't think where sandy was she was a quite biddable creature and good-hearted but she had a flow of talk that was as steady as a mill and made your head sore like the drays and wagons in a city if she had had a cork she would have been a comfort but you can't cork that kind they would die. Her clack was going all day, and you would think something would surely happen to her works by and by, but no, they never got out of order. She never had to slack up for words. She could grind and pump and churn and buzz by the week and never stop to oil up or blow out, and yet the result was just nothing but wind. She never had any ideas any more than a fog has. She was a perfect blatherskite. I mean for jaw, 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 talk 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 jabber 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 but just as good as she could be i hadn't minded her mill that morning on account of having that hornet's nest of other troubles but more than once in the afternoon i had to say take a rest child the way you are using up all the domestic air the kingdom will have to go to importing it by tomorrow, and it's a low enough treasury without that end of chapter twelve Chapter 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter 13. Freemen. Yes, it is strange how little a while at a time a person can be contented. Only a little while back, when I was riding and suffering, what a heaven this peace, this rest. This sweet serenity in this secluded shady nook by this purling stream would have seemed where I could keep perfectly comfortable all the time by pouring a dipper of water into my armor now and then. Yet already I was getting dissatisfied, partly because I could not light my pipe, for, although I had long ago started a match factory, I had forgotten to bring matches with me, and partly because we had nothing to eat.' Here was another illustration of the childlike improvidence of this age and people. A man in armor always trusted to chance for his food on a journey, and would have been scandalized at the idea of hanging a basket of sandwiches on his spear. There was probably not a knight of all the round-table combination who would not rather have died than have been caught carrying such a thing as that on his flagstaff. And yet there could not be anything more sensible." It had been my intention to smuggle a couple of sandwiches into my helmet, but I was interrupted in the act, and had to make an excuse and lay them aside, and a dog got them. Night approached, and with it a storm. The darkness came on fast. We must camp, of course. I found a good shelter for the demoiselle under a rock, and went off and found another for myself. But I was obliged to remain in my armor, because I could not get it off by myself, and yet could not allow Alessandre to help because it would have seemed so like undressing before folk. It would not have amounted to that in reality, because I had clothes on underneath, but the prejudices of one's breeding are not gotten rid of just at a jump, and I knew that when it came to stripping off that bob-tailed iron petticoat I should have been embarrassed. With the storm came a change of weather, and the stronger the wind blew, and the wilder the rain lashed around, the colder and colder it got. Pretty soon various kinds of bugs and ants and worms and things began to flock in out of the wet, and crawl down inside my armor to get warm. And while some of them behaved well enough, and snuggled up amongst my clothes and got quiet, the majority were of a restless, uncomfortable sort and never stayed still, but went on prowling and hunting, for they did not know what, especially the ants, which went tickling along in worrisome procession from one end of me to the other by the hour— and are a kind of creatures which I never wish to sleep with again. It would be my advice to persons situated in this way to not roll or thrash around, because this excites the interest of all the different sorts of animals, and makes every last one of them want to turn out and see what is going on. And this makes things worse than they were before, and, of course, makes you objurgate harder, too, if you can. Still, if one did not roll and thrash around, he would die." so perhaps it is as well to do one way as the other. There is no real choice. Even after I was frozen solid I could still distinguish that tickling, just as a corpse does when he is taking electric treatment. I said I would never wear armor after this trip. All those trying hours, whilst I was frozen and yet was in a living fire, as you may say, on account of that swarm of crawlers, that same unanswerable question kept circling and circling through my tired head. How do people stand this miserable armor? How have they managed to stand it all these generations? And how can they sleep at night for dreading the tortures of next day? When the morning came, at last, I was in a bad enough plight, seedy drowsy fagged from want of sleep weary from thrashing around famished from long fasting pining for a bath and to get rid of the animals and crippled with rheumatism and how had it fared with the nobly-born the titled aristocrat the demoiselle alisande de la carte why she was as fresh as a squirrel she had slept like the dead and as for a bath probably neither she nor any other noble in the land had ever had one so she was not missing it. Measured by modern standards, they were merely modified savages, those people. This noble lady showed no impatience to get to breakfast, and that smacks of the savage, too. On their journeys, those Britons were used to long fasts, and knew how to bear them, and also how to freight up against the probable fasts before starting, after the style of the Indian and the Anaconda, as like as not Sandy was loaded for a three-day stretch." We were off before sunrise, Sandy riding and I limping along behind. In half an hour we came upon a group of ragged poor creatures who had assembled to mend the thing which was regarded as a road. They were as humble as animals to me, and when I proposed to breakfast with them they were so flattered, so overwhelmed by this extraordinary condescension of mine, that at first they were not able to believe that I was in earnest. My lady put up her scornful lip and withdrew to one side. She said, in their hearing, that she would as soon think of eating with the other cattle, a remark which embarrassed these poor devils merely because it referred to them, and not because it insulted or offended them, for it didn't. And yet they were not slaves, not chattels. By a sarcasm of law and phrase, they were free men. Seven-tenths of the free population of the country were of just their class and degree, small, independent farmers, artisans, etc., which is to say, they were the nation, the actual nation. They were about all of it that was useful, or worth saving, or really respectworthy, and to subtract them would have been to subtract the nation, and leave behind some dregs, some refuse, in the shape of a king, nobility and gentry, idle, unproductive, acquainted mainly with the arts of wasting and destroying, and of no sort of use or value in any rationally constructed world." And yet, by ingenious contrivance, this gilded minority, instead of being in the tail of the procession where it belonged, was marching head up and banners flying, at the other end of it, had elected itself to be the nation, and these innumerable clams had permitted it so long that they had come at last to accept it as a truth, and not only that, but to believe it right and as it should be. The priests had told their fathers and themselves that this ironical state of things was ordained of God, and so, not reflecting upon how unlike God it would be to amuse himself with sarcasms, and especially such poor transparent ones as this, they had dropped the matter there and become respectfully quiet. The talk of these meek people had a strange enough sound in a formerly American ear, They were free men, but they could not leave the estates of their lord or their bishop without his permission. They could not prepare their own bread, but must have their corn ground and their bread baked at his mill and his bakery, and pay roundly for the same. They could not sell a piece of their own property without paying him a handsome percentage of the proceeds, nor buy a piece of somebody else's, without remembering him in cash for the privilege." They had to harvest his grain for him gratis and be ready to come at a moment's notice leaving their own crop to destruction by the threatened storm they had to let him plant fruit-trees in their fields and then keep their indignation to themselves when his heedless fruit-gatherers trampled the grain around the trees they had to smother their anger when his hunting-parties galloped through their fields laying waste the result of their patient toil they were not allowed to keep doves themselves and when the swarms from my lord's dovecote settled on their crops they must not lose their temper and kill a bird for awful would the penalty be when the harvest was at last gathered then came the procession of robbers to levy their blackmail upon it first the church carted off its fat tenth then the king's commissioner took his twentieth then my lord's people made a mighty inroad upon the remainder after which the skinned freeman had liberty to bestow the remnant in his barn, in case it was worth the trouble. There were taxes, and taxes, and taxes, and more taxes, and taxes again, and yet other taxes, upon this free and independent pauper, but none upon his lord, the baron, or the bishop, none upon the wasteful nobility, or the all-devouring church. If the baron would sleep unvexed, the freeman must sit up all night after his day's work and whip the ponds to keep the frogs quiet if the freeman's daughter-but no that last infamy of monarchical government is unprintable and finally if the freeman grown desperate with his tortures found his life unendurable under such conditions and sacrificed it and fled to death for mercy and refuge the gentle church condemned him to eternal fire the gentle law buried him at midnight at the cross-roads with a stake through his back and his master the baron or the bishop confiscated all his property and turned his widow and his orphans out of doors and here were these freemen assembled in the early morning to work on their lord the bishop's road three days each gratis every head of a family and every son of a family three days each gratis and a day or so added for their servants why it was like reading about france and the french before the ever memorable and blessed revolution which swept a thousand years of such villainy away in one swift tidal wave of blood one a settlement of that hoary debt in the proportion of half a drop of blood for each hogshead of it that had been pressed by slow tortures out of that people in the weary stretch of ten centuries of wrong and shame and misery the like of which was not to be mated but in hell. There were two reigns of terror, if we would but remember it and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other had lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons, the other upon a hundred millions— but our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror the momentary terror so to speak whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with life-long death from hunger cold insult cruelty and heartbreak what is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake a city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over but all france could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves these poor ostensible free men who were sharing their breakfast and their talk with me were as full of humble reverence for their king and church and nobility as their worst enemy could desire there was something pitifully ludicrous about it i asked them if they supposed a nation of people ever existed who with a free vote in every man's hand would elect that a single family and its descendants should reign over it forever whether gifted or boobies to the exclusion of all other families including the voters and would also elect that a certain hundred families should be raised to dizzy summits of rank, and clothed on with offensive transmissible glories and privileges to the exclusion of the rest of the nation's families, including his own. They all looked unhit, and said they didn't know, that they had never thought about it before, and it had never occurred to them that a nation could be so situated that every man could have a say in the government. I said I had seen one, and that it would last until it had an established church again they were all unhit at first but presently one man looked up and asked me to state that proposition again and state it slowly so it could soak into his understanding i did it and after a little he had the idea and he brought his fist down and said he didn't believe a nation where every man had a vote would voluntarily get down in the mud and dirt in any such way and that to steal from a nation its will and preference must be a crime, and the first of all crimes. I said to myself, "'This one's a man. If I were backed by enough of his sort, I would make a strike for the welfare of this country, and try to prove myself its loyalist citizen by making a wholesome change in its system of government. You see, My kind of loyalty was loyalty to one's country, not to its institutions or its office-holders. The country is the real thing, the substantial thing, the eternal thing. It is the thing to watch over, and care for, and be loyal to. Institutions are extraneous. They are its mere clothing, and clothing can wear out, become ragged, cease to be comfortable, cease to protect the body from winter, disease, and death to be loyal to rags, to shout for rags, to worship rags, to die for rags, that is a loyalty of unreason, it is pure animal, it belongs to monarchy, was invented by monarchy. Let monarchy keep it. I was from Connecticut, whose constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit.' and that they have, at all times, an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient. Under that gospel, the citizen who thinks he sees that the commonwealth's political clothes are worn out, and yet holds his peace, and does not agitate for a new suit, is disloyal. He is a traitor." that he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him it is his duty to agitate anyway and it is the duty of the others to vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does and now here i was in a country where a right to say how the country should be governed was restricted to six persons in each thousand of its population For the 994 to express dissatisfaction with the regnant system, and propose to change it, would have made the whole six shudder as one man. It would have been so disloyal, so dishonorable, such putrid black treason. So to speak, I was to become a stockholder in a corporation, where 994 of the members furnished all the money and did all the work, and the other six elected themselves a permanent board of direction and took all the dividends." It seemed to me that what the 994 dupes needed was a new deal. The thing that would have best suited the circus side of my nature would have been to resign the boss ship and get up an insurrection and turn it into a revolution. But I knew that the Jack Cade, or the Watt Tyler who tries such a thing, without first educating his materials up to revolution grade, is almost absolutely certain to get left." I had never been accustomed to getting left even if i do say it myself wherefore the deal which had been for some time working into shape in my mind was of a quite different pattern from the cade tyler sort so i did not talk blood and insurrection to that man there who sat munching black bread with that abused and mistaught herd of human sheep but took him aside and talked matter of another sort to him after i had finished I got him to lend me a little ink from his veins, and with this, and a sliver, I wrote on a piece of bark, put him in the man-factory, and gave it to him, and said, "'Take it to the palace at Camelot, and give it into the hands of Amias Le Poulet, whom I call Clarence, and he will understand.' "'He is a priest, then,' said the man, and some of the enthusiasm went out of his face. "'How a priest!' didn't i tell you that no chattel of the church no bond-slave of pope or bishop can enter my man-factory didn't i tell you that you couldn't enter unless your religion whatever it might be was your own free property mary it is so and for that i was glad wherefore it liked me not and bred in me a cold doubt to hear of this priest being there but he isn't a priest i tell you the man looked far from satisfied he said He is not a priest, and yet can read—' "'He is not a priest, and yet can read, yes, and write, too, for that matter. I taught him myself.' The man's face cleared. "'And it is the first thing that you yourself will be taught in that factory.' "'I—I would give blood out of my heart to know that art. Why, I will be your your... slave—your—no, you won't—you won't be anybody's slave. Take your family and go along.' Your lord, the bishop, will confiscate your small property, but no matter. Clarence will fix you all right. End of chapter 13. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it